Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I told you last week, I love the book of Ephesians. Um, When people come to me and say, Pastor, I want to start reading my Bible, I always say to them, well, let's start. I'm going to have you start in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Luke, or the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel of Matthew. Because what I want you to do uh, early on in your understanding of, of being a Christ follower, or as you're kicking the tires of faith that you would really see and focus on the teachings of Jesus to begin to understand him, him and, and what his life is about and what he says and how he speaks to us. Uh, but then after that, uh, a lot of times I'll say the next book is Ephesians. And I told you last week that a lot of times people skip over chapter one and sometimes chapter two and three and they go right to the practical stuff. But some of those people, they start in chapter one kind of like what we're doing. And all of a sudden, they're reading along, and they come across this freight load of theology. I mean, right out of the chute, they hear these verses that we're going to read again in just a minute, but it says things like, he chose us. And then it says a verse later, he predestined us. And people go, whoa, What does that mean? And all of a sudden, they have a collision early on with this really pretty deep theology. And so they'll usually call the person that recommended them to the book of Ephesians, which is usually me. And, you know, and it's always, you know, they'll they'll call and they'll go, Terry, you got just a minute? I'd like for you to just kind of help me understand this God chose us and God predestined. You got a minute? (laughs) Yeah, Right. And all of a sudden, because they're thinking this stuff through, and they're, and they're, and they're going, I, I don't know about this. It seems like if I'm chosen, I'm in, but if I'm not, I'm out. Well, what does that mean? What's going to happen? I mean, do I have no say, no choice in this whole thing if it's being chosen and, and, and being predestined? And you know how these calls usually come. They'll come like right when I'm getting ready to go to golf or something. You know, it's not like you can unpack this in just a minute. Or, you know, they'll come, you know, into the evening after everything is kind of settled down, the kitchen's clean, and spouse has just looked at you and kind of giving you that little coy look that says, you know, honey, it's been just a little while. <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden, the phone will ring, and somebody says, could you unpack this for me? And by the time you go through it, you know everybody's going to be disappointed in the evening because... <laughs> This is not something you unpack in, uh, unpack in just a minute or so. This is, this is pretty deep weeds. Well, I want to read this because we're going we're gonna to kind of attack this today. Um, and uh, you, you'll, you'll pick up. So let's, let's pick it up in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. We covered the first two verses last week, and we'll get as far as we can this week. Now it says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you go through this, what I'd like for you to notice is there's a preposition in. Throughout the first chapter, what you're going to notice is there's, and and I've actually highlighted it this week because it was just such a great reminder of being in Christ. And all of the things that because we're in him, he's done for us. It says, blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, listen to this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. See, that's, now we're getting into some theology there that can be troublesome for some people. 
Now, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and his will, and to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Who's the beloved? It's Jesus. Now, it's interesting because what you're going to see here is there's three stanzas in the first 14 verses. The first stanza is, is uh, after his salutation and greeting, verses 3 through 6, declares the work of the Father in the past. Second stanza is verses 7 through 12, which declares the work of Jesus in the present. This is what he is doing for us right now. Well, and then verses 13 and 14 really trumpets the work of the Spirit that's going to take place in the future. So we see the, the Trinitarian, the Godhead, being manifest and spoken about in these first 14 verses. And I think I'll stop there because I know I'm not going to get any further. Um, but in verses, one, in, in verses 3 through 14, you have to kind of understand, in the, in the original language, that is one sentence. It's amazing because, you know, Paul isn't writing this. Could you imagine being his scribe and all of a sudden he's just going off? Did you get that? Yeah, 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 I got it. And then pretty soon, you know, he's going, oh, slow down, man, because what happens is, is it's almost as if Paul is, 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 is speaking about God and then all of a sudden he kind of shifts gears into this just this praise, and he begins to speak all these things. It's almost as if he sees and re is reminded of everything that Jesus Christ has done for him, and there just begins to be this wellspring of praise. And the word praise is actually used three or four times in this section, in this passage of uh, Scripture. And he just, it's almost like he just gets carried away. But within it is kind of a, a, a powerful statement and some wonderful theological truth. Now, as we work our way through this chapter, there's some wonderful things that will encourage and build every one of us here. But, but there's also some really um, difficult things where some of these words that I just read have become fighting words during different periods of church history, now, even for some groups today. There are many good and many godly Christ followers who have waged war. Not physical, but waged words of war, war of words, because of the very thing that I've just read. Because they begin to argue over theological issues. It's been going on for 2,000 years, really. But it really heated up 500 years ago. And since that time, Denomina entire denominations have been split over the truth. Father against father and father, I mean, father against son and mother against daughter. I mean, we've got civil wars. We've had churches that have split and started new denominations because of the very thing that I just read. I mean, pastors have lost their jobs over this. Hopefully, I don't today. Um, but for a lot of people, this is serious stuff. So why don't we just jump in and have some fun? Well, it's going to be a little theological at points, but this is, this is important. And um, there's two camps that I'm going to be talking about this morning, and I've really debated whether to really give you some historical perspective on them, but I decided not to because I, I didn't want to make it a total classroom. But there's two groups, really, that we're going to talk about and kind of 
there's two sides of a theological coin here. Number one, there's Calvinism. Some of you have probably heard of Calvinism. It was established by John Calvin in the 1500s. And he come up, actually he didn't, he came up with a theology, but then his followers afterwards came up with this thing called the five points of Calvinism. And they focused on the total sovereignty of God. That we are sinners and there's not a chance in the world because we're so depraved and so sinful, there's not a chance in the world that we would ever choose God. Everything of God's work in salvation is based on him. Well then, Probably 60, 70 years later, there was a man named Jacobus Arminius who came up who disagreed with that, who actually was a student of Calvinism, but he started to read the scriptures in another way and said, no, that's not true. And, and, the, and, the, and the theology of Jacobus Arminius was that man has a choice. He is free to choose. While God has a part in it, he is free to choose. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit, and there's more to their theology. That's just, a, just kind of a, uh, basically a skim the surface, their bottom line. But under that, of course, are more points. But we're going to unpack it a bit. And I do this just to kind of help you think through this whole thing of God choosing us and this whole thing about God election and predestination. And I don't do it for us to pick a position to defend and to fight over. As we're going to see throughout the book of Ephesians, the greater issue for Paul is always the unity of the church in the midst of diversity. When you get to heaven, God is not going to ask you, were you a Calvinist or an Arminius? And I'm just going to tell you, listen, there's churches. There are churches that say the elders and the pastor, or because they're part of a denomination, they'll say, this is our stance on this. And if you want to be a part of our church, this is what you've got to believe. And if you don't, then don't become a part of this church. Uh, I don't believe that. These guys are men. They've come up with their theology, and they're much brighter than I am, but I don't necessarily believe that you can put God in this nifty, nice little box of five points, and that one side is right over the other. In our church, there's a few mountains that I would probably say, if you want to be a member here, and when you go to class 101, I tell you what those are. There are certain beliefs you've got to have. This isn't one of them. But interestingly, it's one of the biggest arguments in Christendom for over 500 years. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're going to do it because uh, we want to stay unified and we, we, we welcome diversity. We don't want cookie cutter clone Creekside Christianity. So understand that as we go through. I'm just here simply to study this and, and, and that we would dialogue and you would be able to talk about it. But ultimately, the most important thing is that we preserve the unity of the faith. It's funny because I did it, one of my senior papers that I did when I was in the preacher factory was on this very topic. And I had this prof, one of the most brilliant people I've ever known, and I've talked a lot about him because he went and pastored a, <clears throat> a major church in the Four Square Movement up in Gresham, and he was a fighter pilot, a mathematician kind of guy, brilliant. So I went into this class, and I thought I knew his position on this. And so I took that position trying to kind of get his affirmation. Well, after I gave my little dissertation on it, he just tore it apart and ripped it up and made me feel really stupid. And um, not purposely, but kind of, I think. And, uh, 
And, that, and that's what can happen here because, you know, the Calvinists are very strong on this. And so is the Arminius camp. And, and I don't really care which side you line up because ultimately it's about Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that this morning. So he says here, the first thing he talks about is spiritual blessings. Paul is thanking God as he prays for the, or as he's speaking out and writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, he's just thanking them for spiritual blessings. This really shows where a person is spiritually. Remember, Paul's in prison. This is a prison epistle. And he's thanking God in the midst of being in prison for everything that he's given him. See, the problem with the church, and especially the American church, because we're affluent, we have a lot, we have a tendency to think of, and there's a lot of preachers that will even preach this, that the spiritual blessings of God is because you're a spiritual person ultimately begins to be distilled down into material blessings. And don't allow that to happen in your life. That's why there's so many disciplines Christ followers because they don't have the spiritual blessings that a lot of preachers will preach about because it really, it's material blessings. And what Paul is talking about here are the very things that we're going to cover in the next couple of weeks. There's about nine things that he lists out here in chapter one that Jesus has given us. See, we focus so much on what we need to do for God. Paul's saying, no, 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 focus on the spiritual blessings of what God has done for you. Never forget that. Hear me, loved ones. Did you know that because you are chosen, you have been predestined? Guess what? You have these spiritual blessings available to you right now. Everything we need to be spiritual once you come to Jesus has already been invested into your soul and your spirit. The key is, is that we do what well, what the writers say, and that we grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter said when he wrote his book in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power, speaking of Jesus, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. What's it all about? Well, the, the, it's all about this. It's in Christo. It's what I told you at the beginning. In Christ. In Jesus when he comes and invades your life, bowls you over with his grace, that is when you begin to be blessed with every spiritual blessing. He says, well, it's in the heavenlies. Do I gotta go to heaven to experience it? No, it's nothing to do with floating in the sky, but it has everything to do with living in the presence of Christ here and now, the one who is perpetually, continually with you. And when you do that, when you walk with him, when you love him, when you read of him, when you grow in him, you know what? A little bit of heaven begins to come down into your life. That's the promise here. Well, then he says this, and this is where we kind of get into the deep weeds. He says, but he chose us in him. It is here that we enter into the language of great debate in verses four and five. These words of being chosen, these words that he predestined us, it's really hard for a lot of us. This picture of God sitting in heaven in his timelessness and in eternity before the foundation of the world, it says, before the world was ever framed, before there was ever a creation, it says that he chose us. I don't know about you, how many of you when you were in school <clears throat> had to, you know, maybe in PE class or some game, you had to line up and the teacher took their little pets, two of them, and said, Timmy and Whitney 
You're my favorites. Would you go ahead and pick your teams? And all of a sudden, they start picking, they start picking. And 22 students later, there's about four left, and you're there. You know, that's not a good feeling, is it? Well, people have a real hard time believing that God could sit up there on his heavenly veranda before anything has taken place and goes, hmm, hmm, yes, I like her. No, Terry, <laughs> no, move them along. And, and just kind of in this selective process. See, it's one of the issues of this section that we, we don't see in here the word foreknowledge as we do in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about the foreknowledge of God. We only see God right here in his sovereignty making a choice. Now hear me. One of the reasons that I have a hard time buying into this God electing us in some kind of a selective process that in some discriminating process allows some to come and he refuses others to come is because of all the other Bible passages that talk about the character of God. Now, before you put me in any camp, because our in-state students, when I talked about this kind of thought, I was in one camp and I actually ended up being in another a little bit more but I'm not in one camp on this. I'll just tell you right up front. So you're, cause you're probably going to go, Hmm, let me see where he lines up. But some of the passages, let me just remember in second Peter in his letter in chapter three, he's talking to the church and he's writing about the coming of the Lord and all these people are waiting for Jesus to come. And they begin to complain. They begin to say, where's the coming of the Lord? We've been hearing about this now for 30 years. What's going on? And then Peter makes this, this, this statement. And, it's a, and in this conversation, he inserts this about the character of God, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. God is long-suffering, and he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to life. That doesn't sound selective to me, does it? Or to you, does it? See, that's the, that is the picture and the disposition of God toward all humanity. He is not willing. It is not his will. It is not by his choice that any would be damned or headed into eternal life without a relationship with him, thereby sent to hell by his selection. Now listen, heaven and hell are, are clearly taught in Scripture, you know, whatever you want to believe based on what you're hearing in the culture today because we've had some significant and prominent preachers come out and basically say they don't believe in hell or that there's actually going to be a separation. I do believe that, and I'll preach that, and that's a pretty big hill. So j just know that. But it is not clearly taught that God selects some to hell and others to heaven. I would have a hard time trusting a God like that. I'd have a hard time trusting knowing if I'm even one of the select few or chosen. Remember Matthew 25, 41 in the book of Jude, it tells us it was never God's intent for his people. It was originally designed for Satan and the demons. The only way you and I can ever go there, loved ones, is over Jesus' dead body that he gave his life for you and I. It's the only way. Uh, but some people will do that. They will stomp over him to get there. But now consider these other passages, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, not the cosmos, not this system world, but the people that make up the world. He loved them so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will come to him, 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. Revelation 22, 17 talks about this, whosoever will come and to drink of the water, speaking of the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about those people who would respond to the Bible, his word. And he said there's two kinds of people. There's those who respond to God's word and they, obey, and they build their, their life on the rock of God's word. And then there's other people that build their life on the sand. I don't know about you, but he's talking about a choice there. Who are you going to build on? Remember the thief on the cross? He's dying. Altar call. Throws up a Hail Mary. And Jesus says, yes, today with me you'll be in paradise. Jesus didn't turn to him and say, hey, I've chosen you, not him. The guy turns to Jesus and says, would you remember me today in paradise? What does Jesus say? Yeah, today you'll be with me. Now listen, the Calvinist, that's kind of Arminian theology there because it says that man is involved in the process. And Calvinists can do a great job of, of coming against all that. But see, I'm not trying to bring anybody against anybody. I'm trying to take the totality, the whole counsel of God, the whole of Scripture, and say we may not be able, first of all, we're not going to solve this today, okay? I mean, 500 years, and it's going to go on till Jesus comes. But I just want you to have an understanding of how you can see how Jesus and what he is doing for you. Now, even though I believe this is clearly taught in Scriptures, the part that we do have a choice, we can't get around this little passage right here. God has chosen. We've been predestined. It says it twice throughout chapter 1. Based on this verse, I can't say that God just kind of looked ahead and in his foreknowledge, he saw how many people would respond favorably to the gospel. And that because he looked ahead and saw how we would respond, then he decided that we would get in. Because if you attach, listen, if you attach the sovereignty of God and his right as God, to elect and to decree in his own ability and in his own power and in his own thinking of God that is much higher than our thinking, if you link that with ability, with foreknowledge to elect you based on, well, how you're going to do and be, hear this, that's not good because then salvation begins with you. Now think this through. If God looks ahead and sees your, big, your goodness and he makes his decision and he says, oh, I see Terry's going to do this or that or the other and he decides that you get in because of that, then salvation gets based on your goodness. And we're going to see in chapter 2 that salvation is never based on how good we are or what we do. It's based on en Cristo, in Christ Jesus. You don't want it to begin with you, loved ones. A salvation based on your performance, your goodness, or beginning with you, well, think it through. If you are the origin and you are the source, the beginning of salvation, then what begins with you can also end with you. And one of the things that I am committed to is the security of the believer. Salvation begins with God, and Paul is making that statement that all spiritual blessings begin and have their origin in God. 
before time and space, before our space continuum that we lived in, that God started, God made these decisions before the foundation of the world. And hear me, they all center in Christ Jesus. And I can't totally unpack it. I don't fully understand it, but I trust it. And this is a deeper discussion, than, and, and, and you're probably going to be confused if you're not already, to figure out trying to understand this doctrine of election. But it is important. We were chosen by him, but I am convinced we have a choice. But see, if you dismiss the doctrine of election, you know what? You'll begin to lose heart because you'll wonder if you're going to make it through. But as you grasp the fact that God actually chose you, it will strengthen your heart and your faith to get through the most difficult times in your life that you face. I love what D.L. Moody, a preacher of a couple centuries ago, said about election. He said, I'm so glad God chose me before I was born because I don't think he would have chosen me after I've lived. (laughs) Can you kind of just say amen to that, huh? Yeah. Thank you, Lord. See, he chooses us, and yes, there has to be a response. See, it's, it's as if when a person decides to choose the Lord, we walk through this spiritual door, and on the front side it says, whosoever will, come. But then as we get through it, the moment we get through and we simply look back, on the other side is John 15, 16 that says, you didn't choose me, I chose you before the foundations of the earth. Listen, that's the thing about God, loved ones. So much truth in the Bible is held in dynamic tension so that we can't box God up. Well, then he says, I want you to be holy and blameless. To be holy means, because of this election process, because of coming to Jesus Christ, he says, I want you to be holy. No, not I want you to be. You know what he says? He's really saying, you are. How many of you feel holy today? Really, just raise your hand. Yeah, okay, good, one of you. That's, uh, That's good. Most of us don't, do we? These are intimidating words, holy and blameless. Well, holy really means to be separated unto God. Now hear me, this is our position today, right now. I know this is hard for some of us to believe, but if you are in Christ Jesus, in Christo, you are considered holy. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on that cross. That's our position. Now some of you may not be practically living it out, but positionally, this is what God sees because of Christ. Have you ever seen a, a knitting, a frame knitting thing? Tapestry, thank you, yes. If you look on the back, that's why it's good to have a good wife. You know what I'm saying? You see that tapestry on the backside, it's got all the little stitching and the phrase and the knots and the time. It looks like a mess. But on the other side is the beauty of the finished artwork. See, Jesus stands between us and the Heavenly Father. That's why this is such an important passage. When God looks down, he sees that finished artwork, as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 2, because of what Jesus has done, and he's our intermediary. 
But you and I, we live here. The reason most of us couldn't raise our hands is because we see ourselves, those little knots, those little frays, that little mess on the backside. And that's where we live. That's where we get discouraged. That's where we forget who we are and what Jesus has done for us. And that's why a lot of us struggle in our walk. The word holy, though, also carries the idea of being different. Blameless has the idea of being perfected. And those words really do kind of intimidate us. But because we've been chosen to live in Christ, we are different as we grow in our practices of life, beyond our position. Now listen, the only way it can happen, and it should begin to happen in our lives, is as we walk with Jesus Christ. If, you're, if you say you're walking with Jesus Christ and change isn't taking place, I would, I would really consider how, how close are you walking? Are you really walking with Jesus? Because see, if we're holy in my world, I'm going to be different. And guess what? I am going to bring a difference to my world. Over time, people are going to go, wow, he's different and not in a weird way hopefully, but in a good way that begins to be the church Monday through Saturday because we go into our world and we're different than the rest of it. Why? Well, because we are related to the perfect one, Jesus. See, when you work on the job, you work under a different standard than the union or even the employer dictates. You're different because you're holy and you're living for God. If you're an employer, you have a different mentality for treating the people who work under you or with you because now you're related to Jesus Christ and Monday through Friday, you're treating your people different than most other bosses would. You're going to live different in your community because you're going to bring forth the life of Jesus to others every day, Monday through Saturday, because you are in Christ because you are chosen, you're going to live a different way. You're not going to do it in an intimidating or a condemning way to people. You're going to do it as Jesus did. Why? Well, because you're related to him. Now, this whole holiness thing is kind of hard, isn't it? But holiness describes the process of Christian transformation, how we're made different, how we're positive and different in our world. This quality of life is determined for us and given to us when Christ comes into our life. That's what the Bible says, positionally. We are holy before God, but now we get to practically walk it out and work it out. Do you get that? We gotta make decisions. We gotta make choices every day. We're not gonna compromise this. We're not gonna go with the current and the stream of life. I suppose the best way to illustrate this is years ago when I first moved here, um, I had a pastor friends in Antioch. When we first arrived here, they bought a new house over in Antioch, and <clears throat> this home needed a lot of work. I mean, it was a total fixer-upper, but it was in a nice area, so they bought it. And uh, they had this swimming pool that probably hadn't been cleaned in years. The algae was so thick, we could walk on it. You know, I mean, it was, it was, we could walk on water. Well, our friend showed us all this, and we did a walkthrough with him. Well, uh, finally, uh, Alan called, our, uh, called a pool service, and they were even shocked at the mess and the disrepair. And he was going to empty out the pool. And they said, no, 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 man, you'll drown your neighborhood. So what they did is, is they began to just kind of 
skim off all the algae, and then they would, you know, tr- try and fish out all like the branches the, from the trees around there and all the leaves, and they begin to just clean out as much as they could. A couple of rats, a few rodents. You know, they'd get this, you know, they'd get the, the, the little screen thing and they'd go to pick it up and the thing would just disintegrate all over the pool. It was pretty messy. It wasn't pretty. But, you know, they're just going through all of this stuff. And then finally they get all of this stuff cleaned out and then Alan has to jump in and scrub the walls. You know, so, well, it's their house. You do that. And so, so he begins to do that. Well, after some days, the guy says, okay, this is what you're going to do. Once you get it all cleaned out, you're going to put in new filters. You're going to put a pump in. You're going to add chlorine and some startup chemicals. So he begins to do that. And after a few days, the water begins to change. And they keep doing this. And after a week or so, it begins to change. Well, he had me coming over a couple months later. And so we're in the pool, and I'm blowing water and spitting water out of my nose and my mouth. And you know how you do that. You know, you just, it comes up. And then all of a sudden, he tells me, well, how do you like swimming in our rodent stew? And then, he, because then he tells me, he goes, you know, all of this stuff was in here, but it's the same water. But it's been changed and transformed. See, listen, loved ones, for you and I, this whole thing about holiness is the quality of God's life that lives within you and begins to change you from inside out and begins to make you clean and pure. Why? Well, because you're in Christo. Because you have been chosen. When When we come to Jesus and begin to experience his life, there's gonna be things inside of us It'll be changing. Some of the mess will get cleared away. Not because we try so hard, but because simply we're walking in an agreement with what Jesus has already done for us and given to us. Now he notices and then he says that, well, he's predestined us. I believe there is a predetermination concerning salvation. But God doesn't predestined people to hell, only to heaven. In Luke chapter 12, Philippians 4, 3, Revelation 21, it talks about this book of life that our names are written in. And I read this this week in in Revelation 3, 5. It says this, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. White is always a picture of robes of salvation. And guess what God says? This is Jesus speaking to the church. He says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and the angels in heaven. And I get the implication of this. Theologically, there's four other places where it talks about the the Lamb's book of life or the, the book of life. It seems to suggest here that every person's name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's kind of a salvation logbook. Until when? Well, until one makes it clear that he has no interest in the Lord and that he chooses not to walk with the Lord, determines not to receive the Lord, determines to go his own way and ultimately turns his back on the Lord. Then his name her name gets blotted out. 
Why? So when the book of life is opened and the great white throne judgment comes, when all stand before Christ, all of those that rejected and are brought before God and discover their names are absent, well, or blotted out, they can't say, well, our names were never written in them. No, they were. You were chosen. But you rejected the source, the place, the one who loves you, gave his life for you. All you had to do was to respond and to receive. That's the God we serve. That's the God that loves us. And the last thing he said, he said, I've adopted, we've been adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. Another part of this election and spiritual blessing is that we've been adopted and we become a part of his family. Paul uses the same language here that would be very familiar to these people. He says, in love, you were predestined to be adopted. Listen, hear me. There's a purpose for every one of your lives. Every one of you has a destiny with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why you were born, how the circumstances of your birth and conception came about. Some of you feel like you weren't wanted by your mama or your daddy. It might have been, you might have heard all your life. It was an accident. We weren't planning on you. So what? There's a heavenly father that goes beyond that and says, guess what? (laughs) I chose you. I predestined. I have a plan for you. And don't ever forget it. Why? Because part of this predestination and choosing piece is I planned for you. I have a destiny for you. Paul uses this language, the same language, so it's pretty important. He uses it in Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8 to underscore this relationship. Most of you know that Trina and I adopted two boys. When we adopted them, it was was mounds of paperwork. We had to pay out big bucks They had people come and check us inside and out, everywhere, which way, left and right. And then we had to stand before a judge. And he said, if you receive this son, are you going to take care of him as if he was your own? Are you going to put him in your will? Is he going to be part of your inheritance? Yes, sir. See, isn't it interesting? See, I chose, we chose our sons. We had to pursue them. We had to go after them, find them, and then we had to secure them. They were not born out of our flesh, but they were born in our hearts. They came to our family by our pursuit and choosing. Legally, they became part of our heart. We, couldn't, we don't even see them as adopted. They're simply our boys. See, adoption was a common place back in Paul's time. But in those days, there was an interesting custom that was associated with it. The Roman family was totally dominated by the father. Did you know he could disinherit his biological children? There's even historical records of where they had their kids killed. That's how much power the father had in a Roman family. He could disinherit them. But get this, if a Roman family adopted a child... They couldn't disinherit the adopted child. See, two ways that we become part of a family. We're born into it or we're adopted into it. As a Christ follower, 
you're either in, you are in God's family both ways. John 3, 5 through 8 talks about being born again. Being born into God's family. You're a natural born child into it with all the legal rights to the family inheritance and holdings that heaven and the spiritual blessings that Jesus has to offer that we're talking about. But then Ephesians 1.5 here says that we're adopted into the family, and guess what? We have all the, listen, security of an adopted child. I wonder if Paul doesn't write this to let us know the security that we can have as a child of God. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation. People come to me all the time and go, Pastor, can I lose my salvation? I go, I don't know who would want to. I believe in eternal security. I want you to believe in it too because in love, God chose you that you would be part of his family and not an orphan. And that's the good news. These are some big truths that we've just kind of skated over today. Big truths of, uh, of theology. I don't share them with you so that it would divide any of us. But I want you to be able to grapple with them and then be able to walk away and hold them in tension. They have not been settled in history and they won't be settled here. We can't put God in a neat box. And as you can see, I'm kind of picking some truth from the scriptures from both sides. And I think that's the best way to do it. This is the question for today. Have you responded to being chosen? You got God over here that says, I chose you. You got the enemy of your soul over here that says, I've chosen you. Now you've got to cast the final vote. Have you done that? And some of you need to see how secure you are today. Some of you are afraid that, oh, am I going to make it? If you're chosen in the beloved and you're walking with him, you will make it. And you need to know that today because it will change the whole course of how you see your life. Amen? Would you pray with me, please?